Welcome to episode 386 of the Haskin Cast podcast. I am your host, Scott Haskin, here with a very special guest. But you know, this year has already been nuts because I started the year by reviewing a rap album, which is only the second one I've done on the show. Then I had the pleasure of interviewing a Juilliard alumni and an Emmy award-winning writer, which aired on Saturday. If you guys have not checked out that show, please do. That's one of the most important shows I think I've done in seven years of doing the show. But today we are here at the request of my co-host of, Aero, of Backtracks, Aerosmith Revisited, Corey Morissette, to review an album that... I was only vaguely familiar with this time, so we've we've stepped it up from the last one. Here he is, Corey Morissette. Corey, how are you? Hello, Scott. I'm calling you from the Mexican Blackbird Trail uh, <laughs> on my way to Mexico, the same trail that, that Billy the Kid uh, and his compadres uh, took to try and escape the long arm of the law and Pat Garrett. Actually, no, I'm not. I'm just, just, just messing with you. How's it going? I'm doing great. Uh, to talk about this one because uh it's another one from my childhood we talked about uh an album you didn't like uh thunder and an album i think you kind of did like cinderella uh, long cold winter was the first show i was on and uh mm-hmm. to me this, this one was always kind of right up there with uh with long cold winter when i was cruising around the the backwater streets of uh, plentywood montana in my uh, dodge duster uh this was on the cassette player a lot i think that is such an appropriate setting and and dust, you know, whenever I think of a Western, I just think of dusty trails. I think of just dirt flying in the air everywhere you go. Uh, I will say that was a nice, uh, nice effect that you started off with. And I was wondering how equal the reverb is when you're outside. <laughs> that, that secret will die with me, Scott. But uh... Well, I have a question for you, Corey, because when we did the, the last episode, when you were on for Thunder, you challenged me. You said, how come when you start this show, you're all excited, and when you when you get on uh, our Aerosmith show, you're just kind of there? And I said, I would step up my game. Have I stepped up my game? Not even remotely close, no. You're, you're, you're still just as dour <laughs> as ever. But it's kind of funny because uh, a friend of mine, a cable technician who's helping me get my internet working, mm-hmm. uh, he saw my podcasting equipment. I told him about the Ultimate Catalog Clash because he loves Metallica. He said, I'm going to check that out because we're doing Metallica this season. And he called me after listening to the first two episodes and said, I'm I'm not used to hearing you happy. I'm used to like dour, grouchy Corey at work. Uh, <laughs> it was weird to hear you like with some life in your voice and, and happy. I'm like, oh, wow, I didn't realize I was such a miserable bastard, but that's good to know. I I can't really envision that. Um, even when when you're being challenged or when there's a lot going on, you always have this level of, of jovial attitude that I've always appreciated. And... I I would have a hard time envisioning that. I could imagine at work, though, some of the pressures that you're under because you do a lot of broadcast work. So it is, if this is broken, this is a huge problem right now that needs to be solved. That I could imagine maybe a little bit of stress, but in general, you're just a pretty happy guy. Well, that's just it. When I'm at work, if I'm talking to the technician, it's because something's not working and I'm under pressure, uh, either an edit deadline or a live shoot that mm-hmm. we need to get fixed right now. So he's, yeah, he's, he probably heard me uh, at my most stress, but here I'm just kicked back, relaxing, pretending I know something about music. Well, it's also the difference between spending your time doing something you have to do versus something that you choose to do because you enjoy it. Yeah, no, that, that's, that's very true. I do like what I do at, at work too, for the most part, mm-hmm. but it, it, it can be stressful when you're producing a 33 hour telethon and the internet drops out, you know, that that's kind of an issue. Yeah, I could understand that. <laughs> and oh, that, that is that's a, lot of, that's a lot of responsibility. I, I can't even imagine. 
yeah, you know, we're, uh, you know, you, I, I kind of look at my job and think, you know, is anyone watching sometimes? But when you're putting on a 33-hour telethon raising, uh, you know, $400,000 for a local organization, uh, there's a lot of people watching. And a lot of people want to see their, their kids perform and their neighbors perform and all that kind of stuff. So you want to put on the best show you can. So you want everything to work as, as well as it possibly can. Absolutely true. Well, let's talk about the shows that you do because you have a, a myriad of shows besides Backtracks Aerosmith Revisited, which I've had such a great time working with you on the last uh, year or so. Uh, and we're, we've still got quite a ways to go. I would say we've got a good two years of shows yet to cover, uh, which is exciting. But you also have uh, your, I would say your flagship show and the podcast will rock that you do with our friend Mark Kameyer, the uh, Van Halen catalog. Again, not one of my favorite bands, but I enjoy the episodes very much. Um, you guys are are winding down to the last what twenty some shows, and how does that uh, how does that feel after all the time you've put in? Uh, well, you get a, a certain sense of accomplishment because when we set out to do this a couple of years ago, you know, we knew it would be about a three year journey and uh, to get through the it wasn't a huge catalog in in some respects. You know, you get some bands you could be doing shows for, you know, if you did ACDC. Uh, you know, you're, you're still going Rolling Stones. Geez, you know, you, that'd, that'd be a 10 year thing. Or even you're right. Heap. They, they got a pretty massive catalog. Van Halen was limited. That's why, you know, we kind of dipped our toe in with, with Van Halen, but it's very bittersweet because we're coming to the end of their catalog. And even looking at our wheel now, there's what, 19 songs on it. It's like, well, it, it's really feeling like, like, you know, the, the end is nigh, but uh, we're still having discussions. Uh, I'm sure we're going to keep going uh, mm -hmm. as long as Mark's still having fun. And as long as our, you know, our, the people who listen to the show still enjoy us, I, I would still like to do uh, solo wheels, uh, whether we combine everything into one or which could be interesting or do four different separate wheels for each day of the week and do like a Dave wheel one week, a Sammy wheel one week, uh, an extreme slash Wolfie wheel one week, and then maybe a fourth wheel just populated with uh, either influences of Van Halen or maybe uh, tunes that our uh, patrons uh, want us to talk about. So. Uh, that that's another idea that that's currently out there. You guys have such a great rapport. I I kind of want to see you do the pot of thunder thing where you just keep the show going when you've reached well beyond the catalog of the band that you're covering and they were covering Kiss, whose catalog was pretty thick. You know, it took them a while to get through that. The the trick with Uriah Heep was that I was doing four episodes a week. So yeah, they had done 25 albums plus I did the live album and uh, their previous band's album. But when you're doing four shows a week, you can actually fly through that pretty quick. But it was that last show was pretty emotional for me when I was like, wow, this is kind of it unless they record something else. Which they might, right? Like they're they're still active. Uh mm -hmm. just days away as we record this, but they're gonna announce some tour dates. I'm really got my fingers crossed they got Vegas on there for you because I know how much you'd love to see him again right in your uh, right in your hometown. Well, I guess your your current residence, I shouldn't say hometown, being a, an Easterner. Uh mm -hmm. they're from from Detroit, but uh, I, I'm I, I got my fingers crossed for everybody. I'm hoping because a lot of everybody plays Vegas. Like nobody plays Saskatchewan. Like I, I got a bloody travel. If I want to go see Sammy Hager, I'm flying to Toronto next year. <laughs> I've got the flights, uh, I've got the hotels, and I've got the tickets. Uh, you're lucky. You just just people just show up on your back door ready to play. It sucks. You've had some some really random shows though in Saskatchewan that just like a, an extra date added or a band's like that ah, will just play here. And the the ultimate one for me was uh, Motley Crue's uh, Carnival of Sins tour, the big reunion uh, show uh, back mm -hmm. in, oh gosh, I don't even remember where, when it was, but it was the four of them back together. Uh, they did Carnival, and it was like two, three-year tour. Like It was a huge, huge, massive tour. And just out of nowhere, yeah, our last show is going to be in Regina, Saskatchewan. So, and that was the one my, my wife and I went to. I want to say that was like 2013. Was Tommy doing the roller coaster by that point? 
No, uh, roller coaster was after. This was actually uh, before then, because uh, they they did. Uh, well, he did a, a circular roller coaster on another tour that came through Saskatchewan. They actually played in Estevan, which is about forty five minutes away from me. Mm-hmm. And, and that show became notable because somebody actually jumped over the barricade, jumped on stage, and attacked Vince Neil. Wow! And knocked over Mick Mars, which, if you know Motley Crue, Mick Mars uh, has that uh, a spinal condition, mm-hmm. so he's actually quite frail. And they knocked him right to the ground. And then security finally got a hold of this guy. And I just remember because I had second row uh, seats for that show, and Nikki Six is just boot kicking this kid right in the head. Uh, and you know the cops were there, and it was a whole big thing. Motley, you know, Mick said he was fine, and they did a couple more songs, but they cut the show sh- uh, short and uh, ushered us out of there pretty quick while uh, police took care of things. But it was, it was it was kind of a scary thing. Oh yeah, because I mean, just fans having access to throw things at the band is dangerous enough. I remember somebody threw a beer can and hit James Hetfield in the head at, at one show at uh, Metallica was playing. And um, that's scary stuff. You know, why would you go and buy a ticket, pay, you know, those tickets are not cheap anymore. Why would you go through all that just to try and hurt the band? It just makes no sense. And in the middle of a crowd of fans. It, it's becoming very prevalent nowadays. Like uh, Pink got hit with something. Uh Really? I, I think uh, Megan Thee Stallion uh, got hit with something. Uh, e- even actors. I know uh, the cast of uh, Dune Part 2 was overseas at a film festival, just, you know, uh, taking pictures for fans, and somebody threw something at Florence Pugh and hit her right in the eye. And it's like, why the hell are you throwing things? Like, yeah. when did this become a thing, and how the hell do we get it to stop? Because it's just stupid. Well, and if you if you hate a character that they played, I get that they connected with you in a way that was really powerful. And in a way, that's kind of a testament to their talent. But can you really not separate the actor from the part they played that wasn't them? Well, and the funny part is, is that she wasn't in part one. So uh, unless they really know the books and they know what character she's playing, they, they don't know what her character is going to be like in the new movie because it doesn't come out until March 1st. Oh, then that really makes no sense. Yeah, it's just, oh, hey, there's somebody I admire. I'm going to huck this thing at them and maybe they'll wave at me. I don't I don't understand. I don't have that way of thinking. I'm not a psychopath. I, I don't uh, know what yeah. the deal is to throw something at someone unless it's you. And then they're throwing panties usually, right? So, well, yeah, and and they don't travel that far. Um, I remember when uh, when Alison Arngram, who played Nellie Olson on Little House on the Prairie, when she first came on the show for my hundredth episode, she was telling me a story of she was in one of the uh, parades, and from from the crowd, somebody threw a, an orange soda at her from at, on the float. And even then, I was thinking, okay, that's a distance, and that's a lot of effort. That's that's got to be a pretty good arm to reach a float from the side. And why would you do that? You really think she's that thirsty? Oh, my God, that woman needs an orange soda. Why is no one helping her? It's up to me. Why is her dress that clean? <laughs> she would look at an orange. I'm going to prove it to her. It's just, uh, just, just don't. Like, yeah. you, I, I always want to be like George Costanza and just yell, we live in a society. Stop this. Yeah. My my friend Tina Guo, who's a very well-known cellist, plays with Hans Zimmer and has, has did the Wonder Woman soundtrack and co-wrote the Wonder Woman theme with him. She uh, just posted today that somebody had attacked her in one of her videos saying that uh, she was a, like a devil. And, and I'm like, you know, it just reminded me of when I posted a couple years ago that I had only put 2,000 miles on my car the first year of, of the full lockdown. And somebody said that I was destroying the ozone layer when the average is 13,000 miles a year and I came in well under, but I'm the problem. It's all your fault. I knew it. It is. I knew it. Yeah. So when, uh, when everything just catches on fire for no reason, just feel free to curse my name. 
I do every day anyway. So. I appreciate that. Speaking of curses, Young Guns 2 came out, what was it, 90, had to be 91? 1990. 1990. 90. And uh, I remember, I don't remember the exact circumstances, but my roommate, I think, had a connection where we got free tickets to go see it. And then I think they got bored or they, something else came up and they, they wanted to. So we left like halfway through the movie. And uh, I still don't think I've ever seen the end of it because Westerns really aren't my thing. But you know what I do like? is a good slide steel guitar. <laughs> Which is a very Western element, so sure. It does. And this soundtrack is full of them. When I think of Westerns, I tend to think more of the old style Westerns, like the boots that just reverb across the floor and, you know, that weird kind of talking. So the James, uh, John Wayne. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's what I think of. And um, I, I don't, I, I remember even when, um, Back to the Future came out with their Western movie. I just was not interested in it because I'm really not a period piece kind of person. See, that was that was my favorite one. Was it I, really? I grew up on Westerns. My dad, a big Western fan. He loved war movies. He loved Westerns. So mm -hmm. uh, if he was watching TV on a Sunday, it was usually a Western. So I, I watch a lot of them. Uh, you know, when I went to film school, Stagecoach is the first film we ever really covered. So I, I was quite versed in Westerns. And uh uh, I was a fan. I remember when uh, Young Guns 1 was announced. I think that was 88 or somewhere in there. But it had this all-star young cast of like Charlie Sheen and Emilio Estevez and Lou Diamond Phillips and Kiefer Sutherland and Casey Smosco and all these guys. And you think, oh, this, this could be fantastic. You know, it's kind of the the the, the Brat Pack uh, in a Western. It's going to be great. The movie, you know, was kind of hit and miss for me. I, I do enjoy it. I haven't seen it in a long time. But uh, Young Guns 2 is the continuation of that. I was always really fascinated by Outlaws because mm -hmm. down here... I live in kind of the badlands of Saskatchewan. So just south of me, <laughs> you're laughing. I'm sorry. I don't mean to laugh, but it just it just sounds funny because you always describe it as this really desolate town with just tons of open prairie and really not a lot going on but snow. And then you 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 bring controversy into it. That just that just strikes me as funny. How is that controversial? Because it's open plains and there's nothing to steal. No, th this is where they hit out. There, there's a place south of here uh, called the Outlaw Caves. Mm -hmm. uh, they're actually called the Sam Kelly Caves, named after the Outlaw Sam Kelly. But uh, it's rumored Billy the Kid actually spent some time up here. So wow. if they're ever in like Wyoming, Montana, cattle wrestling or whatever, and they need to lay low for a while, they would jump the border and they would stay in this cave system that's just south of here. Mm -hmm. And you know, the hitching posts are still there. You can see the beds that they had wow. all kind of laid out. And they would just lay low for a couple of weeks until the heat died down. Then they would head off back down south of the border again. And there, uh, there was no real uh, border though at the time, right? They were there weren't any guard stations. There wasn't no. anybody to stop you from crossing. No, no, crossing the border was pretty easy in those days. Yeah, I would think it was so. The largest I, uh, unguarded border in the world, like uh, between two nations. So mm -hmm. there, there's especially back in the you know 1800s, there's tons of cracks. Right. When did when did they really start cracking down on that? Do you know? Uh, sometime last week. I have no idea, Scott. I'm not a biographer. <laughs> you just seem to know a lot of stuff. Um, I remember flying into Montreal for Christmas, and and um, I didn't really think about customs too much because whenever I had gone to Canada, it was either through the tunnel in Detroit or over the the bridge, and um, it was never a big deal. We we never got pulled over. We were never searched or anything. And uh, boy, I felt like I had committed some kind of federal crime or I was under suspicion of drug smuggling or murder because they raked me through the holes. Uh, you must have looked suspicious. I'm, I, I used to, I cross the border every weekend. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm not wearing my Plentywood Montana shirt today, but I have it. 
because every weekend, you know, we would go down in the States and we'd add our, uh, I'm sorry to say, uh, no cops listen to this, right? But I had a fake ID that said I was 21. And we would, you know, stop at a bar uh, in Plentywood and, and, you know, get, get some American beer, which is basically like water. Like compared to Canadian beer, it's absolute horse piss. But we would still grab some of that and we would just drive around America. So I, I got caught, uh, you know, smuggling beer and cigarettes sometimes across the border. But the last time, one of the last times I crossed the border was with a friend of mine. We we're going to see Queen and Paul Rogers uh, in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And uh, he had just had laser eye surgery. So his eyes were beat red. But the border guards thought he was just whacked out of his mind on whatever, right? So they <laughs> ripped my car apart. They pulled us into secondary. And I've been in secondary hundreds of times. I actually saw the band Skid Row uh, on the Canadian side of the border one time because they were driving up to open for Bon Jovi in Regina on the uh, Bad Men- or the New Jersey tour. Wow. I, I saw Rachel and those guys kind of get out of the bus and, you know, they're exhausted and stuff. But so secondary is no big deal for me. And I'm answering their questions. Right. Well, your friend seems really kind of whacked out and stuff. I'm like, I just started laughing. Oh, you just had laser eye surgery. Uh, he's <laughs> he's 100% sober. Uh, he just looks like a, a drug addict and they just kind of begrudgingly let us go. Well, I mean, there's there's a lack of strange mannerisms unless he had some kind of affect already. It's a strange uh, guy. Yeah. Okay, that's fair then. Uh, wow, very interesting. I I just didn't expect it, and I I was actually concerned that they were not going to let me in. And I started thinking, you should really have your customs on the other side then, because why put me on the flight and then strand me here if you don't want me here but then you would have to have literally customs for every country in every airport and that would make no sense well and because uh, there's a tv show in canada called border security that actually follows border guards my daughter and i watch it all the time so what happens is if you get denied entry into canada they just put you on the first flight back home is it kind of like cops but for border patrol yeah and you see them uh uh you know somebody's coming in from like a you know a, a drug country uh, you know, their interrogations are the big one is, you know, when you cross a border you're on the plane, they give you those uh, import cards. So you got to fill out if you're bringing in any uh, food or vegetables or anything to declare declaration mm-hmm. cards. And a lot of people don't fill those outright. They'll just but nope, nothing, nothing, nothing. And then they open their suitcase and it's full of meat or, yeah. or something that's like it says right on the card. It says, are you bringing any meat? You check. No. Oh, I didn't know. It's the dumbest thing. Like everybody gets these cards. Just read it. Tell the truth. They're going to find out. Like some guy was trying to cross the border and he. He was like wanted, like he, they had a warrant out for his arrest. He's like, did you really think we weren't going to notice? Like, <laughs> yeah, in uh, in California, and not not at the border, just kind of in the middle. Uh, I think it's uh, uh, maybe a half hour south of Barstow. There is a fruit and vegetable guard stand to make sure that you're not transporting fruits and vegetables. But if I'm if I'm in the northern part and I'm heading south towards Mexico. And I'm still three, four hours away from Mexico or nine hours if you have to drive through L.A. Why would there be a concern in the middle of the state that I have vegetables in my car? It just makes no sense. Yeah, that one I couldn't tell you. That doesn't make any sense. Well, nowadays they they have people posted there and they just wave you through. So I think it's really a uh, a ruse that if they're looking for people, they just have a way to slow them down and maybe, you know captrum or something i don't know but the whole thing's just really weird to me well you know uh, don't break any laws and you should be able to travel freely Uh, that's what i felt because last time we flew down to vegas right Uh, like my wife's suitcase got pulled by uh department of homeland security had the tag on it we're like i don't care we've got nothing to hide Mm -hmm. Uh, every border guard we met you just completely pleasant like if you got nothing to hide you know what are you worried about it might slow you up five minutes who cares life's too short exactly 
Yeah, exactly. And and uh, always make sure that your suitcase is in your possession and you're fine. And that you packed it because that's the big thing. Is this your bag? Yep. Did you pack it? Yep. Oh, I found all these drugs in it. Oh, that's not mine. <laughs> right. Come on. Right. So, yeah. It I, was... I have a little faith in human beings. And if you have layovers, though, you could say, hey, it was in my possession until I gave it to the airline. Oh, it's true. My, my favorite episode of Border Security, the, they brought in a blue suitcase with like yellow twine on the handle. And they asked the guy, is this your suitcase? Yep. All right. They opened it up. And it was full of contraband. He's like, no, that's not my suitcase. Must be one just like it. So they're like, bullshit, right? We're going to take you out in the, gar- the luggage uh, department. We're going to find your suitcase then. And sure enough, they found it. They found the exact same suitcase with the exact same yellow twine on it. That was his. So it wasn't his suitcase. So sometimes <laughs> it does turn out to be Interesting. And I'm sure that that if they don't have it already, I'm sure they will have apps that now track your suitcase so you know where it is coming through the luggage, how long it's going to be before it reaches you and all that good stuff. Because you have to have an app for everything now. Well, I would hope so, because, you know, losing bags is one of my biggest fears. You know, traveling airline travel, right? You don't want to lose your bag. Especially if you're coming to a major tourist destination. Like if you came here to Vegas and you lost your bag and you can't drive away from the strip to go to like a Walmart or something and get some inexpensive clothes, you're really screwed because clothes on the strip are not cheap. No, they're not. And, you know, I travel with my CPAP machine. But if I don't have that, I could die yeah. in the night. Like, Yeah. And that's not going to we don't put that in the tourist brochure, just so you know. OK, good. You, you, <laughs> you learned that the hard way. I was actually my first time on the strip. They were talking about a murder that happened uh, on Fremont Street. Mm. Like, oh, well, that's at least a few blocks away. I should be safe, right? Yeah. I, well, it, the murder's already over, so. Exactly. Stop yeah, living in the past. Just, yeah, I was just that one guy that we're mad at. They shouldn't be mad at me. I'm, I was just here to see <laughs> David Copperfield. Uh, what a mistake that would have been. It was. Um, so, oh, you didn't like it either? I, 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 I'm, I love magic. And we, we went and saw Penn and Teller the night before, and that was really, really good. Yeah. And Penn and Teller, amazing show. We got front row for David Copperfield, so we saw how everything was done. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of knew anyway, but so much of his magic is done, his misdirection, like his assistants are doing everything. Right. And he's kind of like, ooh, look at me. Whereas, whereas Pet and Teller are like, okay, this is the trick. This is how we did it. Then they subvert your expectations and add another wrinkle to it that you don't know about. And mm-hmm. it's really, really cool. And it's such a beautiful theater that they're in, too. I, I went to a couple of tapings of their uh, TV show, uh, Pet and Teller Fool Us. And uh, that was pretty amazing. I have not been to their actual magic show, but their television show is phenomenal. And uh, when I went and saw uh, David Copperfield, it was a ratty theater. It's right next to a nightclub. So at some point, all of a sudden, he's doing a trick and you hear coming through the walls. (laughs) The music was all over the place. At points, I thought I was at like a hip hop show. At points, I thought I was at an award show with like a big orchestra it just made no sense. And I didn't I didn't think he did anything spectacular illusion-wise. Yeah, his is all props. Yeah. And in Teller, there's real artistry to it. And the, the show I went to, they did their bullet catch, which is one of their most famous uh, uh, bits that they do. Mm-hmm. And I, I still, to this day, have no idea how they do it because, you know, they, they, they each have a bullet. They get someone from the audience to write something on that bullet. They put it in each other's guns. There's a big uh, plane of glass in between them. They just turn and they fire. Glass shatters. And then they each have the other's bullet in their mouth with, with the uh, inscriptions that the other people had put on. So, and, and I never noticed anybody like passing bullets, like, like going from one side of the stage to the other, like an assistant saying, oh, let me just check this on you. Mm-hmm. And like, nothing like that. 
Like it's really incredibly well done. Yeah, they're masters. There's no doubt about that. Uh, but we're not here to talk about crazy Vegas magi music ma magicians or musicians. We're here to talk about, and this would be one crazy musician in Vegas. Uh, we're here to talk about Young Guns 2. Did you see this in the theater? I think I did uh, back in 1990, probably in Plattywood, Montana, actually, because they had a, uh, they, they had a, a, a great uh, old style theater with the balcony. Oh, uh, yeah. I would run during the winter months and then during the summer they had to drive in. So this came out in like August, uh, I want to say, of 1990. So I probably saw this in their theater because they shut down the, the drive-in in like August somewhere in there. And this would have been probably because I don't think it was a first run theater. So they probably would have got it a month after release. So around September, I think I saw it in the theater. But uh, again, uh, Billy the Kid, uh, Outlaws, uh, I was kind of all in. And I was, I'm was i always curious, uh, you know, how Outlaws meet their fate. And Billy the Kid was always controversial because, you know, they said he was shot in the back by Pat Garrett, but they never had a body. And so many people throughout the years have claimed I'm the real Billy the Kid on their deathbed, right? So nobody really knows the the full story uh, of Billy the Kid. Well, yeah, it's one of those things where you're talking about a time where news did not travel fast, uh, if it traveled at all. Uh, everything was pretty much rumor and hearsay back then. Uh, I would imagine a lot of people probably thought Billy the Kid was just fictitious at all. Yeah, but there was a, a William H. Bonney. Uh, there, there, there's pictures of him. There's, a, of course, his criminal record. So he was a notorious outlaw uh, throughout the United States. And uh, it's a really interesting story. And I've always kind of wondered what actually really happened to Billy. Was he shot in the back, was buried somewhere near the Mexican border, or did he live to be 101? And like uh, uh, brushy Bill Roberts, uh, who's the character at the beginning of the movie, who's telling the story of Billy the Kid. And it's actually Emilio Estevez in old age makeup uh, talking to a, a lawyer or something, uh, you know, months before he was about to die to, you know, proclaim that he was the real Billy the Kid. Yeah. And deathbed confessions are always so questionable because you've got nothing to lose at that point. Yeah. <laughs> like know? how many people have claimed to be D.B. Cooper uh, on their deathbed? Like probably a yeah. dozen or more, right? Like I'm trying to think, who am I going to claim to be when I, uh, I'm really Michael Jackson. Uh, and then, yeah, I think I did second, whatever. You better get some nasal surgery first if you want to pull that off. Yeah, and, and D.B. Cooper, that, that's like one of the best mysteries of all time, I think. I think Billy the Kid is a good mystery, but D.B. Cooper, that's just, that's so next level. Well, it, it's, uh, for some reason, he's been glorified, right? Like, it's not a, they, they treat him like Robin Hood, like he robbed from the rich yeah. and gave to himself, unlike Robin Hood, right? Well, well he, yeah. ac he accidentally distributed the money. <laughs> Uh, yeah, some of it apparently. Like, and I I watched every documentary on DB Cooper because again, there's like 20 plausible suspects who it could be, but they've never actually found out who the real DB Cooper is. Is he still alive? It, it's kind of like uh, the two guys who escaped from Alcatraz too. Right. Uh, watch those documentaries. Apparently, they're still alive. Well, allegedly, if you listen to the last one on the History Channel, mm -hmm. uh, you know, just living away in Mexico. Well, and they they claimed, well, there were two people that claimed to call into the FBI and say, hey, we just wanted to let you know that, yeah, we're still alive. And, yep. you know, but that could easily be anybody. Exactly. And D.B. Cooper, like that case is still open. They may have closed it now, but it was the longest open investigation in U.S. history. It is still really? the only unsolved uh, American hijacking or skyjacking in, in U.S. history. So. Wow. Well, I mean, they've only recently feel like they've they've um, uncovered who Jack the Ripper likely was, and they still don't even know that. And that was a long. That was what seventeen hundreds. Yeah, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, they also recently discovered the identity of the Summerton Man, which I kind of thought that would never happen. 
uh, and he was just a guy. <laughs> it's it's like when they did the uh, Master Magician show that was on for weeks and nobody knew who he was. And it was this big mystery. And he kept saying, at the end, I will reveal myself. And then in the end, he pulls his mask off. I'm like, who the fuck is this? Just some just some hack magician. <laughs> it made no sense. Of course, it's not going to be anybody famous. Like, I, I think I'm going to ruin my career today. Let me call Fox and see if they'll do a series of specials on how yeah. magicians do their tricks. No. Now, if he had to pull his mask off and it would have been like Doug Henning. That would have been cool. I would have been impressed. It would have been like David Copperfield. Like, okay. Yeah. But yeah. it's it whole uh, meaning behind the specials. Like, oh, I want magicians to up their game. So I'm going to reveal these secrets so to elevate the, you know, whatever. No, you're not. You want fucking money. Like, yeah. that's all it is. That, that's yeah. All. I'm yeah. sure the millions of dollars that Fox paid you to be on that show. And, uh, you know, I'm sure that had nothing to do with it. Yeah. I mean, in a way, he's kind of right. Because... I think it probably did force people to find some new things to do, mm-hmm. but that would have been the natural progression anyway. I think so. Yeah. No, he, 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 that's just something you could say to kind of save face. Obviously he was kind of a failed magician whose uh, shows wherever he was performing weren't selling. He's like, mm-hmm. I got to do something to put uh, food on the table. Let, let's try something like this. And it worked. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, Cause I was thinking about this, um, when I was watching Cobra Kai, you know, one of my absolute favorite shows, final mm-hmm. season, season six is coming out in September. Looking forward to that now that the strike is over and everyone can continue with their lives. Um, but one thing I was thinking about was it seems like in, in martial arts movies, there's really no legal repercussions for whatever you do. You could beat somebody up on the street. No cops are going to hunt you down. Nobody's going to knock on your door and arrest you. There's no lawsuits for assault. It seems like the Wild West was pretty much the same thing. Like they could just have a gunfight in the street and no one was going to get arrested for that. Well, there were sheriffs uh, back in the day, but they were, yeah, they, they could be bought. They were preoccupied with other things. I know up here we had the Royal Canadian Mounted Police uh, who were supposed to be much more honorable than uh, uh, sheriffs uh, down in the States. So uh, many tales were told of the RCMP actually capturing outlaws. And uh, yeah, we still have the Royal Canadian Mounted Police to this day. They're not mounted anymore. They have cars. Uh, but they're still called the RCMP, and they still wear the big red surge uh, and the hat that everybody kind of equates with with Canadian Mounties. But yeah, back then it was kind of a free for all. And uh, if you knew your way around and you knew the right people, uh, you could pretty much get away with anything. But th- that's what makes that such an interesting time. Because well, in Canada we don't have that anymore. I don't know in America you guys are a little li- little wonky uh, w- with your legal system. Apparently some <laughs> stuff is still quite legal, especially if you're white and you're rich. Well, and yeah, I mean, there's weird laws like you can't uh, consume a lollipop in the state of Washington. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, we we have things like that. A lot of, you know, you can't wear suspenders on a Sunday. You have to get your wife's permission to beat her with a strap unless it's less than three inches. You know, things like that uh, that make total sense are still on the books. One of my favorite jokes in The uh, Simpsons when uh, Chief Quimby was looking at the charter for Springfield and said, apparently it's illegal for ducks to walk around with no pants on. So (laughs) the next shot. Uh, establishing shot had a duck with like trousers on just walking through the frame. Like, Oh, you gotta love mayor Quimby <laughs> Bet- between him and chief Wiggum. Uh, uh, Springfield had no chance. No, no, <laughs> <laughs> but it does. It does seem like it was definitely a, a time and, and they, they kind of, you know, uh, noted as a lawless time, you know, for that very reason. But it's just so hard for me to imagine that you could just walk into a bar and shoot somebody and sit down and get a drink and not feel like you need to run and hide. That is such a bizarre concept to me. I know, right? And the sheriff would be like at the next table and go, ah, oh, you had it coming. 
<laughs> Again, I didn't want to have to arrest him later anyway. Yeah. But uh, so you said that that you were kind of half and half on the first movie. How did you feel about the second one? I and again, I haven't seen this movie in forever, but I remember you know liking it. There's some elements uh, that I wasn't a big fan of. Uh, it was directed by Jeff Murphy, who I believe is an Australian director. Um, he really loves close-ups. There, there was some stuff I thought he could have done different, but story-wise, I thought it was very good. Uh, written by John uh, Fusco, uh, a very talented uh, screenwriter and producer, and uh, I thought it was really well acted. Like I really liked the uh, Lou Diamond Phillips and uh, uh, Kiefer Sutherland characters uh, from the first film. So I was glad to see them come back and. Uh, Kiefer Sutherland's character, especially, he just wants to, you know, he wants to be a teacher. He wants to get away from that whole outlaw lifestyle. But because he knew Billy the Kid and he was part of this regulators group uh, from the first film, he gets kind of get uh, roped back into it where he's on the run again. Um, mm -hmm. So I always kind of emphasized with his, his character. And, and Billy the Kid's just cool. Like uh, and Emilio Estevez is pretty cool too, especially in the late 80s, early 90s. And I really yeah. like how he portrayed that character. So uh, I dug the storyline, I dug the acting. Um, I, I like the guy who played uh, William Peterson, who played uh, Pat Garrett as well. I thought he did a great job. So, yeah, I was more invested in Young Guns, too, than I was in, in the original Young Guns. Well, I think they got a great cast. And and that's, you know, a, a, a great cast can save an OK script if if you're kind of borderline there. But I think from what I remember, I, I was enjoying the story. Um, but it, it's kind of like, I don't know if you could do that movie today. I don't know who you would get that aren't people that are overused for everything, you know, whether it be Ryan Gosling or, you know, uh, I can't think of who plays Aquaman. Um, Jason. Yeah. Jason Momoa. Uh, and I, I, it just seems like there's such a small field to really choose from, to be able to do a movie like this now. Yeah, you know, we got, we got some good young actors. You find an unknown. I think uh, the, Billy, the kid is going to carry the film, right? right. Like the, the character. So find yourself a, a good character, maybe like a Timothy Chalamet. You know, he could probably pull this off. Mm. But uh, we got some great directors out there. Um, the, the name that popped right in my head was James Mangold, uh, who did uh, Logan, uh, Ford v. Ferrari. Uh, he did the new Indiana Jones, which I wasn't a huge fan of, but he did Walk the Line, the Johnny Cash movie. And he did a great Western called 310 to Yuma. Which oh, is he did that movie. one. Yeah, that's uh, that was a great movie. That's with Christian Bale and uh, Russell Crowe. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. I always get that confused with the movie that um, Jennifer Lopez did with uh, Sean Penn. And I can't think of what it is. It's, I think it just might have been Yuma. I think it might have been the title of that. Okay. And uh, and I always get it confused with that. But I have seen 310 to Yuma. That was really good. Another Western I really liked was the one with uh, Kurt Russell and um, The Hateful Eight. Ah, uh, yes. The uh, Quentin Tarantino movie. Yep. A little more modern looking Western. But uh, but I really enjoyed the movie. And, and like I said, I don't normally like period pieces. I find the clothes kind of boring. I, I'm more of a modern technology guy. So for there to be like no electricity or not much uh, is kind of a rough thing for me to get through. But I really enjoy I thought that was a very compelling and intense story. And it was one of those things where nobody could relax for two seconds before there was another twist. You can't do that in any Quentin Tarantino movie, whether it be that or, you know, he did a World War Two movie. Glorious mm -hmm. Bastards. Uh, his new one, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, is really, really good. Uh, he's working on his 10th and final film right now. He says, I'm only making 10, and then he's going to move on to other things. He'll be a, a novelist or work on a TV show or do a play or something, but this is going to be his last movie, he says. Has it only been nine so far? Yep. It just seems like he's been around forever. But it started in 92, I think, Reservoir Dogs came out. So it's been a, quite a while, but he takes quite a, a few years off in between films. Yeah. What a film to start with, right? Yeah, Reservoir Dogs, then right into Pulp Fiction. Like, wow. Yeah, hit after hit. Pretty yeah. amazing.
Well, let's get into our first song. This one's called Billy, Billy, Get Your Guns. Yoo-hoo. I'll make you famous. Okay, I have some thoughts on this one, but you go first. I like this song because okay. it, I, I love the, the, I remember that you who I'll make you famous line from the film uh, was used in all the marketing. Mm. So that immediately kind of, you know, brings you right into the world of, of Young Guns too, And and that's one of the main reasons I wanted to talk about this with you because you're a film composer mm-hmm. and th- there's a, a real art to uh, not, not just film composition, like uh, uh, orchestral film uh, music, but uh, written music, uh, like like a standard rock album for a movie. A lot of times, it's just, oh, I had this leftover song. I'm gonna give it at the, you know, give it to the movie, and uh, maybe I'll get nominated for an Oscar or something. Like it's just a B side from whatever. Bon, mm-hmm. John Bon Jovi actually wrote uh, all this music for this film. Uh, originally, Emilio Estevez went to him and said he wanted to use "Wanted Dead or Alive" uh, in the movie, and John was like, "Well, the lyrics don't match because that, you know, "Wanted Dead or Alive" is about a band on the road." It doesn't really fit your your film that well. Let me write you something. And mm-hmm. Keeper Sutherland said in a story that they all went out for supper one night. There was like six of them and John Bon Jovi, and he was scribbling something on a napkin. And by the end of the night, he had the song and handed it to Emilio Estevez. And he's like, while we were just bullshitting and eating garlic bread, he was writing a number one hit record. <laughs> it's, it's nuts how that happens. I mean, inspiration can strike any time. A friend of mine a few months ago came here to visit. We were having lunch and she was telling me about this strange sound that her ice machine was making. And I said, wait a minute, say that again. And she she explained the sound. And then I just came up with a rhythm for it that I will probably eventually use in a piece of music somewhere. But it's like, you can't, you can't shut that off. If you're a creative and you have that, that mindset, it is going to happen all the time. And you'll see a song in everything you look at. So I love that that happens so organically. But yeah, he's right. One of Dead or Alive, the title of it fits. The song style fits because it kind of has that same Western feel that this soundtrack does. But yeah, the story doesn't work. No more than You're the Best did for the Karate Kid. Exactly. Yeah, another good example, right? So, But uh, full credit to John Bon Jovi for saying, I, I really dig the movie or the idea of the movie. L- let me see if I can write something. And one song turned to two, turned to three, turned into like eight. And then he's, okay, now we got an album. And he, he just yeah. kept going with it. And, and every different song kind of covers a different aspect of the film. Uh, some work, uh, some don't. But uh, to me, this is kind of John Bon Jovi at the height of his powers because he was just coming off of the New Jersey album and tour. Mm. So like as a songwriter, I think he was really at the top of his game around this time. He was exhausted because the uh, New Jersey tour went on forever. Yeah. And they were supposed to be taking this big break. But this opportunity came along and the band wanted nothing to do with it. They're like, we're tired. Like Tico wanted to go golfing. He was like, I've had enough of this horse shit. So he, he, Got a bunch of friends together, including on this track, uh, Jeff Beck, who's playing guitar there, uh, Randy Jackson, uh, Elton John, uh, Aldo Nova, who's a, a Canadian uh, guitarist. Sure. And 
uh, uh, Kenny Aaron, Aaron, oh, fuck, how do I say it? I always get that name wrong. Aronoff? Aronoff, yeah. Aronoff, yeah. Uh, playing drums. Of course, he was the drummer for uh, John Mellencamp for, for a great many years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he did some Smashing Pumpkins, too. He's currently out with John Fogarty. I saw him finally oh. live. He was uh, drumming for John Fogarty, one, one of my favorite drummers of all time, even though I can't say his last name. But um, yeah, I, it's I just, important. I, you know, John just got a bunch of friends together, uh, wrote some tunes for a movie that I think perfectly suit the film, and especially uh, Billy Get Your Guns is a great way to kick it off. First, you got that great Jeff Beck uh, guitar, and uh, production-wise, it sounds like something you would hear like in a bar. Yeah. Like it, oh, yeah. It, it doesn't sound like uh, Bruce Fairbairn produced New Jersey did. You know, mm-hmm. th- this sounds like they were just at a salute and just plugged in some amps and just had some ambient mics picked up, and th- I really appreciated that that aesthetic uh, uh, to it too. Yeah, I mean, it's that that standard 12-bar blues that you would have heard uh, back in the Western days, I'm sure, uh, just not not as full-sounding and no distorted guitars. I do love the guitar sound. I, I think the guitar sound is absolutely fantastic. I love the drum sound. Uh, the first thing I thought of is this sound would have almost worked on Love in an Elevator, but because we get that big kick from Aerosmith, it it wouldn't stand up only because we know it is, with a bigger sound. But this sound, I think, would have worked great. Um, I do love also the um, John's voice on this song. I think he sounds so strong on this whole album. And I don't think that this music was that much of a departure from what he was doing anyway. It's like he found a way to work his style into this movie without compromising either. And that is not an easy thing to do. It's not, no. And uh, he always kind of had, I almost want to say like a country Western influence, like not modern country that we know it now, where it's just, uh, shitty pop music with a fiddle, but right. like real Waylon Jennings, Johnny Cash, Chris Christopherson type uh, country music. He always kind of had that that element uh, in his songwriting, and really in this one, like, and you really, really hear it uh, because I grew up in Southern Saskatchewan in the Badlands, in the Plains. Country music is huge around here, so I, I hear that all the time. So now we got country music, but with an edge, mm-hmm. and, and because it. And we, again, I'm such a big movie fan. Uh, you know, lyrically, you know, I've just seen trouble. He's calling out your name tonight, Billy. Get your guns. You could walk away, but I know you were born to fight. That's Billy the Kid. So, Billy, get your guns. Like, it, it, it's such a great way to open the album. Mm-hmm. And I, I wish that you know, Young Guns Two wasn't such a period piece because you could use more of this music in the film. Obviously, I think only two songs from this album are actually in the film: the Alan Silvestri piece at the end, and then Blaze of Glory, which is played over the final credits. But uh, a great introduction of the album. Like I said, the guitar tone is amazing. It sounds country. It sounds like if I was walking into a bar in Plentywood, Montana, uh, at the Blue Moon, which is the name of the country bar there, they would be playing this, and this is how it would sound. It's not like big and it's full. There's no massive kick, because I equate that more to glam metal, hair metal around this mm-hmm. time. This isn't yeah. that, but it has that influence to it as it has the country western influence to it. Yeah, it definitely has a modern studio-produced sound to it, you know, for for something that, that, that might have been the one detractor for it actually working in the film, was that the music was too modern-sounding for what the visual was. Um, I have to go back and watch the movie and see how that really fares. But that's that kind of limits you to opening credits, closing credits. But to have songs strewn throughout the movie, they don't they just don't line up. Well, and that's why it's music from and inspired by the film Young Guns, too. Exactly. Um, But the songs, I mean, subject wise, tone wise and everything, they fit. Just the sound is too modern. If they would have gone and backed off the sound and used older instruments and that kind of thing, they could have done something that would have been more appropriate for the movie, but it wouldn't have mattered that Bon Jovi was doing it at that point. 
And you want to get Bon Jovi because he was, you know, one of the biggest rock stars in the world at that time, right? So now you can yeah. say, come see our movie, music uh, written, composed, and sang by John Bon Jovi. You know, that, that's going to put a few more butts in the seats. This wasn't a huge hit, but uh, I imagine having John Bon Jovi on the soundtrack helped. Oh, I'm sure. And and regardless of, of the status of the album, it also might have helped movie ticket sales for people to think he was associated with the movie Fans of Bon Jovi are going to want to see everything he did, so they'll go and watch the movie. And he is in the movie. He's in a he plays a, a cameo. He, he's in one of the uh, the jail scenes. I think he's with uh, uh, Doc Keeper Sutherland's character uh, in, in one of his, in the prison scene there. So keep an eye out if you ever get Young Guns too. I can't watch it in Canada anymore. It's not available for streaming. You can't buy the DVD anywhere or whatever. God. But if I ever get to watch it again, uh, keep an eye out for John. He's in one of the scenes. And Keith or Sutherland, let's just take a little uh, detour and talk about him for a second. The first time I remember seeing him was in Stand By Me. And I remember thinking, this guy's going to have an amazing career. And he certainly has. He absolutely has. And I can uh, tell tell you right now, a very nice guy, because I met him. Oh. Uh, th- this is kind of out of nowhere, but uh, his grandfather is a fellow by the name of Tommy Douglas. Tommy Douglas is the father of universal health care in Canada. He introduced that uh, as a politician, uh, but he was originally a pastor, and he actually preached in Weyburn, Saskatchewan, actually at a church that is literally across the street from where I currently live. Wow. I'm at it right now, right down the street. So um, because th- and Tommy Douglas was actually named, and uh, we uh, did a poll one year for, to find the greatest Canadian of all time, and uh, he was actually voted number one. He is Canada's greatest Canadian. Uh, for all the work he did as a politician for Canada's prime minister and, and whatnot. And he introduced universal health care here. So uh, uh, Weyburn, Saskatchewan, where I live, uh, commissioned uh, a statue of him because he, he lived here for a great many years. And when the statue was done, uh, Kiefer Sutherland came to to the dedication because that's his granddad. Mm-hmm. And so like he was just mobbed everywhere he went because we never get huge Hollywood stars in Weyburn, Saskatchewan, right? But he stopped and talked to every single person that wanted to, uh, took pictures with everybody, uh, there's some great shots of him, you know, with his granddad statue saying, I never thought I'd see his face again. And this is so wonderful. And he toured the church here. They have a big Tommy Douglas uh, memorial at the church here. And just a, a really all around cool guy. And just he was so patient with everybody. And he, he, you know, he obviously he's the biggest star that's ever come through here, probably. And he just couldn't have been more gracious. And uh, I have a real soft spot for Kiefer Sutherland now. I love hearing stories like that because what you typically hear in the press are all the negative stories, right? So and so snubbed me. They they you know they wouldn't sign an autograph. They didn't want to talk to me. Blah blah blah. I love hearing stories, and, and I have to say, every celebrity that I've met has been very nice and and friendly. I haven't had any bad encounters with anyone. Um, I've been around bad encounters, but I've not had one myself. Um, but is, am I wrong in thinking that Donald Sutherland is Kiefer's father? You are correct. That is his father. Yep. So talk about a a guy who's been around and been in everything from invasion of the body snatchers to Johnny, Johnny got his gun, which is probably one of the most controversial movies of its day. Uh, the book had been banned by the U S government for a long time. Uh, cause you know, they don't really look good in that movie. But uh, that ties into your ultimate catalog class, because even though you're not going to cover it this season, eventually you'll get to that era of Metallica, which inspired the song one. That's right. And the video as well, right? I think they actually bought the movie rights to it so they could uh, show the video. Or they did. The movie in the video, yeah. Well, first they had to find it. Yeah, fair and, enough. 
And back in the day, you could only find that movie at independent video stores. You would never get it at a chain like a Blockbuster or Hollywood Video or anything. Mm -hmm. uh, but that inspired me to read the book. And the book was absolutely fascinating. Um, I did watch the movie. I thought it was very well done. Um, just uh, amazing when you think about those kind of things. But um, yeah, Kiefer's a, a great actor. I'm really glad to see that he's gone on to have the career that he has. And I think he was a great choice for this movie. Really is because he, he's kind of the uh, the analog for the audience because mm -hmm. that, that's the character you kind of gravitate to, uh, you know, not the wild man who's going to get you killed, uh, even though he's the main character. The audience's way in is really through Doc. Right. And so he really needed that character in this film. The only thing uh, the only thing I think this film was missing maybe would have been a Val Kilmer. Yeah, potentially. Didn't he do a Western? Oh, he did uh, Tombstone. Tombstone, that's right. Maybe that's why I'm associating him with this. And he played Doc Holliday, so another Doc character. Well, that would have been really confusing. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on to our second song. This one is called Miracle. I have some thoughts on this one. Um, I think it's a weird choice of instruments to use an accordion instead of a violin for a soundtrack like this, uh, even though it's not the, the soundtrack, but the inspiration. Um, I thought that was a strange choice. Oh, not me, because that, that's what you would probably be listening to uh, back in those days. You don't get a lot of violins back then, right? You get more of a fiddle tone or, a, mm -hmm. or an accordion. So uh, oh. to me, it, it fit perfect. And I love this, this kind of laid back kind of, uh, you know, uh, just you know, kind of laying around the ranch kind of feel to it. Uh, again, we had Jeff Beck on this one, Randy Jackson again, who I didn't know was a bass player until after American Idol. Oh. Uh, and apparently he was in Journey. Mm -hmm. uh, ben Montench uh, from Tom Payne and the Heartbreakers also on this one, along with uh, Aldo Nova and Kenny Ar Aronoff. Um, but I, I love the laid back feel of it. I love the lyrics. I got to take a miracle to save us this time and your savior has just left town. Again, that fits very well into the mood of the film and completely mm -hmm. different from where we kind of start off. It's Billy, get your guns. And now here's kind of a, a, a quiet moment uh, in the film. You get some character development maybe around here before you kick it back up a notch uh, with track number three. But um, when, when you're talking Western, uh, I don't want to hear too much of an orchestral score. I want to hear, uh, me, you know, music that would kind of fit that time period. And uh, yeah. the squeeze box, I think, kind of fits in there really well. I guess I've never really associated accordion with that. I think more harmonica or fiddle. Um, and I, I typically associate accordion with more like French, you know, French music or, uh, you know, gypsy music, but, uh, I mean, the song has a great feel to it. I love it. I love that, uh, electric, uh, the, I, I don't know what, what sound they're using. Cause it's not an electric piano. It might be a variation on electric piano, but it, it definitely sounded very eighties and very, 
you know, more modern sounding than um, than I would have expected for something inspired by it. But I like the song. It's got a beautiful feel to it. It's very gentle. Um, what's interesting to me is the contrast of the vocals. And this really just kind of hones in on the genius of John Bon Jovi, I think, is that he has a way of singing with great power, but can sing over a gentle song and it doesn't sound like it's out of place. No, this was, like I said, John Bon Jovi at the height of his powers, especially vocally. Now, unfortunately, he can't sing at all. And it's really kind of sad because he still goes out and tries. But back in 1990, uh, there was very few vocally, I think. that, Like like you said, a lot of power, a lot of range in that voice. Uh, he couldn't sing this song uh, today or even probably in the mid-2000s even because it just takes you to that upper register that he just doesn't have anymore. Well, yeah. you have that voice uh, underneath. Uh, to go back to, it is modern instruments, but it's definitely uh, flavored in kind of that old-time Western feel, which I think is a really cool aesthetic you get throughout the entire album, is that, mm-hmm. you know, they're not playing a fiddle, or they're not playing just a, a honky-tonk, boogie-woogie piano. They're playing an electric piano or whatever it is. Or even that uh, that slide, it's an electric slide. It's not what you, you know, not an acoustic that you would expect. You do get some acoustic on this record, but uh, Jeff Beck is playing a really cool electric slide. So I, I really kind of like, and to me, that's the inspired by. It's inspired by the, the look and the mood of the film, and, and using uh, modern instruments, I think, is a cool take on it. Yeah, it's just not what I what I had expected. But you're right. I think the the real key is the fact that it's not stated as the soundtrack. It's inspired by, which is a very important difference. Uh, you mentioned a couple people. So Randy Jackson, you can now find him on the newest version of Name That Tune. Really? It is hosted by Jane Krakowski from uh, Ally McBeal. You remember that show? Mm-hmm. And uh, Aldo Nova, man, uh, I remember his song Fantasy, I think, was the first one I knew from him in the 80s. And uh, I've got a little story about that song, but he also did Ball and Chain back then, which is a very beautiful and sad ballad. And um, what was the other one? Um, Oh, it'll come to me. But uh, yeah, very talented guy. And um, I remember the the full version of Fantasy that you got in the MTV video, but not on the radio version, because the radio version had this cut out. But uh, it had this whole kind of spy helicopter sequence, and uh, you didn't really know what was going on. And when it when the news started coming out from the churches about backwards masking, I was sure that song had something on it because it has a creepy delay in it that just kind of throws the whole song off. And I didn't know anything about music back then to understand what the effects were. So I was positive. And I had the 45 and we used to sit there and play it backwards, trying to search for something. Never found anything, of course. But uh, yeah, that was that was. But it's such a great song. It really is. And uh, I just heard it uh, live. Oh. I took my wife to a concert here in Canada. We have a Canadian super group called Took, uh that is led by uh, Todd Dammit Kearns, uh, who also plays with Miles Kennedy and the Conspirators. And Brent Fitz, who's also in that band, that Slash's solo band mm. uh, and a couple other uh uh, Corey Churko, who just got off the road with Shania Twain in her worldwide tour, uh, they, they formed this little Canadian four-piece, and, and they go around doing Canadian cover songs uh, all over the country. They were just in Regina, and, and they do a killer version of Fantasy. Hmm. Do they do some Brian Adams, too, I would imagine? Uh, they're actually sound-checking some Brian Adams. We got the VIP, so we heard them uh, sound-checking some It's Only Love, but they haven't broke that out yet. They do some uh, Chilliwack, Loverboy. Oh, yeah. Like the great uh, Rush, they they call Rush uh, Canada's greatest uh, uh, band. Uh, mm-hmm. So so they do a, a great Rush tune. Uh, it, a fantastic night of just the uh, music that kind of took me back to my childhood. Because um, as Americans, I'm not sure how much Canadian music you're subjected to, but up here we have the CRTC, which regulates that you have to play so much Canadian content on the radio. 
So we heard all these songs all throughout growing up in Canada. So to, to sit back and hear Tuke do a Platinum Blonde song is like, I know that too. And I heard that in the 80s. Like they were everywhere then because you need to have Canadian content. Well, look at it this way. If it wasn't for that regulation, we would have never had Bob and Doug McKenzie. That's right. That's very true. And the so, world would have been worse off without it. That's right. And the, um, so for Chilliwack, did they do My Girl? That seems like it would be a good choice. I don't tend to think of where music comes from. You know, I mean, I know obviously a lot of the bands that I grew up with came from England and and that area, uh, Germany. But um, in general, I don't, if I didn't learn it from podcasts or just random facts, I probably wouldn't have known Brian Adams was even from Canada, let alone Rush or anybody else. To me, it's just music. Yeah. I'm just surprised you would have heard of Chilliwack because I don't think they ever broke anywhere but uh, Canada. Oh, there was a video for My Girl on MTV, and I loved that song. From the first time I heard it, I thought it sounded amazing. Yeah, they do another song called uh, uh, What You Gonna Do When I'm Gone. That's another uh, big uh, Canadian uh, hit. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it, it, Corey Trickle does the gun, 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 she be gone so long, she be gun, gun, gun so long. Yeah, that's just iconic up here. We, oh, know, yeah. The of my childhood was listening to stuff like that. So, But uh, they, they're, the big finale was uh, before the encore was uh, uh, working for the weekend. Lover boy. Oh yeah. Whenever that cowbell kicks in with the one, two, three, four, the whole place just erupted. That's what? that's like the Canadian national anthem. There is such an energy in that song. You know, and and I remember Lover Boy was really big in the early days of MTV too. Uh they were it was like they were always on. As soon as you saw a red jacket or a headband, you knew that you were gonna hear a Lover Boy song. Oh, absolutely. And uh, you know what? Uh go check out some two, uh, because they do some originals too that are pretty good. Okay. But they have a couple of albums out on streaming uh, where you can kind of check out their, their covers and, and My Girl and Go for Soda by Kim Mitchell. and Oh, great song. Yeah. Great stuff like that. So, Yeah. I had a friend who absolutely loved that. was his favorite song. I, I love that too. And, but they didn't do it live. I was so disappointed that, that Tuke didn't play that one. But it's on their first record, uh, which is a great Canadian cover. Uh, it's the band writing the word Tuke uh, in the snow with their own P. Oh, wow. Well, that's... So it's a family-oriented band. It's a well, it's a very Canadian thing to do when you're taking a leak outside and it's winter. You, you write your name in the snow. I, I wouldn't it be like half of spring and early fall because you guys get snow kind of early a lot of times and it just really lingers for a long time. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. So you you got to do something to uh, to keep yourself occupied. Well, I'm doing my part. It's very overcast here, so we're simulating Canada today in Las Vegas. It's about as close as we get. Well, there you uh, go. No, I, I, too. They, they do uh, sunglasses at night. They opened oh, with... Corey Hart uh, was Harlequin. Canadian? Oh, of course he was, yeah. Oh, okay. Harlequin, do you know them? The song Innocence? I, I don't. Uh, they do Aldo Noma's Fantasy. Spirit of the Radio by Rush. Uh, a couple of great Regina bands like Queen City Kids. Uh, mm-hmm. A song called Dance was great. And uh, the king of Canadian band, Streetheart. What Kind of Love Is This? Uh, that was a big one that they did. They're from Saskatchewan. So we've had some oh. talent through these parts. Oh, for sure. I didn't know that about Corey Hart. That's interesting. Um, so I like the song Miracle, but one thing I felt, and I'd like to get your opinion on this, I, the backing vocals were great. I love the slide guitar, love the keyboards. Um, it kind of reminds me, uh, one of my favorite songs from Shania Twain is called I Won't Leave You Lonely from her Come On Over album. And it's got that accordion feel. It's a very romantic, very beautiful song. Uh, this kind of had a similar feel to it, but I didn't feel it needed to be five minutes and 19 seconds. Maybe a tad long. And I think the single at it was like 504. So they trimmed a little bit out of it. But yeah, it's it's maybe a tad long. I think all these songs, you know, the 350 to 4 range, I think is kind of the sweet spot. So 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you could trim a minute out of this pretty easy. Well, I think the question is, if you're the producer on an album like this and you're making a soundtrack album for not a soundtrack, what is your goal? You know, it's 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 a different kind of marketing. It's a different kind of thing. But your overall rules of if the song is too long, knock it off are still there. Yeah. Now, the next song is 535. And I don't think you should change a second of it. I agree. Uh, but but this one here, absolutely. And it, it's this album is kind of weird in that they had a little bit of time left over. So they put in a little chunk of an Alan Silvestri score at the end. But it's almost like they're trying to extend some stuff too to kind of extend the runtime because uh, John Bon Jovi songs, there's what, uh, nine, ten. There's ten songs on this. So, mm-hmm. you know, they, they needed a couple more probably to fill out a CD at, at, yeah. at, in the day. So it worked well on, like, I just have it on vinyl. I was listening to it on vinyl this morning. But uh, the it, fact that I only get like a minute snippet of, of some of Alan Silvestri's score at the end kind of seems like a missed opportunity. Like, I love is, Alan Silvestri. Give me a little more Oh, of that. yeah. Is it a single or a double album? Single. Single album, yeah. See, it's weird because this would have been around the time that we were really transitioning to CDs. And some albums were not even being put on vinyl anymore already at this point. Right. So it's kind of interesting that, was that a later reissue? No, I think this is an original pressing that I have, so. So they released it at the time. Yep. Oh, interesting. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's take a little listen to the uh, the one song that would be probably the hit of this album called "Blaze of Glory." To me, this is Bon Jovi's vocal wheelhouse right here. Uh, Song-wise, I don't know if it gets better than this either. I think this is one of the, if not best thing he ever wrote. I, I love I, I love the way it comes in. Uh, atmospheric, it fits the song perfect. I love that guitar. That riff is killer. Mm-hmm. Uh, on, on that on that guitar, sounds amazing. And lyrically, wake up in the morning and I raise my weary head. Got an old coat for, for a pillow and the earth was last night's bed. Like, that's how life was back then, right? And yeah. Yeah, every lyric in here fits the song, fits the mood perfect, vocally outstanding, especially on the choruses. Mm-hmm. And I, I, if you can find a, a great live version of Bon Jovi doing this, I, I, there was one from, I think it was 2000 when they played Wembley. Uh, he has his, his full band behind him. They're doing Blaze of Glory. It sounds phenomenal. Um, I, I would remember because live, he really does this song very, very well too. At least he did. Uh, nowadays, right. I don't think he could perform the song to save his life. But like I said, John Bon Jovi at the height of his powers. Uh, vocally, lyrically, musically. I don't know if I got better in this song. The only roads I note down for this song was, I mean, come on, the steel guitar. <laughs> come on, right? 
It sounds fantastic. I mean, it's it's really captured beautifully. You get the full body essence of of what that instrument sounds like. Bon Jovi, I mean, every time I've ever heard him sing on record, his voice is strong. He's very powerful. He tends to stay a little bit more in that upper range and doesn't really use, I think, a lot of dynamics that he could. But in this song, in that opening, you're hearing a little bit more of, of his versatility of what he could really do. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, and I, I'm not smart enough to, to phrase this correctly, so you'll probably have to snip this part out. But there's just something that in the way he delivers this song, uh, in the verses where, you know, he's kind of laying low, you know, and, and then bang, you, you kind of get a, a shotgun crack of a snare or something and shot down in a blaze of glory kicks in kind of soars because that's how every outlaw kind of wanted to go out. Right. He even says, let this boy die like a man, uh, staring down a bullet. Let me make my final stand. If you're an outlaw in the old West, that was the way to go. Right. Shot down in a blaze of glory, not, shot in the back by pat garrett or you know as an old man in your bed in 1950 trying to convince a lawyer that you're billy the kid so it's the perfect outlaw song whereas wanted dead or alive doesn't work because you know that's about a a rock band on the road and you know on a steel horse i ride uh, you know it's constant you know tour buses and planes and stuff It, it it's a cool song it doesn't fit the aesthetic of the film whereas this like a bloody tea and the fact that this song was nominated but never won the oscar for best song still chaps my ass because that year we had uh, a song uh, from a uh, home alone summer in my memory uh we had a song from the godfather part three which is garbage uh, i'm checking out from postcards from the edge uh, which is a shell silverstein composition and the winner was a song from dick tracy a steven yeah. song song from dick tracy and it's awful it's like come on young guns Two blaze of glory is right bloody there with the al pacino dick tracy movie yeah wow madonna yep is madonna huh. Oh, well, yeah. I don't know. This is a great song. Um, I I can find absolutely nothing bad to say about it. And I, and I don't go out of my way to do that. But I, I mean, there's just literally nothing wrong with it. From the, the build in the beginning, you've got the jaw harp, you've got the steel guitar, you've got the metal, uh, that sound of that metal hit uh, that they're hitting, probably like a break drum. And uh, it just, I mean, the build of it is incredible. And then it drops down so that the vocals can now start the next build. And when it kicks in, it's just it's just pure power in your face. And, and that uh, area, uh, that uh, drum uh, fill uh, leading mm-hmm. into the final chorus after the staring down the bullet refrain, where it's just John vocally, let me make my final stand. Boom, 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 Great, great drum fill. And yeah. another big, massive chorus. This was Jeff Beck again, Randy Jackson, Ben Montench, Aldo Nova, and Kerry Aronoff again uh, performing mm-hmm. on this one. Like, no notes, 10 out of 10. It's absolutely perfect. Yeah, and it's weird because they fit replacing his band so well. I mean, you really almost don't notice the difference. Kind of an embarrassment of Rich's too, where, okay, Richie Sambora is too tired to play my record. I'll just call Jeff Beck. Like, <laughs> yeah, right. He's just picking around doing nothing, right? Like, oh, what's Elton John doing? Maybe I'll just, it, this is before text, but it's all, I'll just shoot a, a snail mail over to little Richard, see if he wants yeah. to play the record. Oh, sure. Yeah, what the hell? Yeah, I mean, and that that certainly says a lot for how uh, how big Bon Jovi was at the time. For everybody to just, you know, whatever they, even if they weren't doing anything or if they were starting on something to go, yeah, okay, I'll stop doing what I'm doing and come over and do this thing with you. And then to write something that is just such perfection. You know, it, it's a good point because I think, you know, had Skid Row or Motley Crue called Elton John and said, hey, you want to come do a song? They probably would have passed. But when John Bon Jovi calls, they're like, oh, yeah, because... You know, and, and Bon Jovi, I think musically, maybe on a little different level, 
than than those other bands. Like and yeah. commercially, especially because they knew how to write a ballad, they knew how to write a hit pop song. Right. But there, there's some some tracks had a little bit more to it than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kevin Brown always calls them bon goofy, and you know it it fits in in, in some respects. But uh, I, I put a little more respect on their name, and th- this kind of shows it. Like, oh, I can get a Ben Montage from the Heartbreakers, an Aldo Nova, an Elton John, a Jeff Beck to play in my solo record, because they, they weren't doing that for just anybody at the time. That's true, and and of course, you know, now Elton John is like, yeah, I'll play with Eminem, yeah, I'll play with Miley Cyrus. But back in the day, that would have been a pretty big deal. To, well, I mean, it's, it's still a big deal to get Elton John, but comparatively, he was he was not working with a lot of other people. And the only reason he did the Miley Cyrus song was because it was Nothing Else Matters. And he calls that one of the greatest songs ever written. Because mm-hmm. I remember when he was on the Howard Stern show and he said that, and James Hetfield just went, wow, like what? Elton John just said a song I wrote is one of the greatest songs ever written. Elton John's absolutely, it's one of the best songs ever heard. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a quick diversion from our subject matter today and just talk about that. Because I have to give, you know, you're covering Metallica right now in Ultimate Catalog Clash, which is seriously one of my favorite podcasts i'm not saying that because it's it's friends of mine it's just it's a great show on top of it being friends of mine um i have to give some serious credit to metallica for not having to be the leather jacket wearing badasses all the time to show emotion to say hey you know what we've been in therapy we do group therapy we've done everything we need to do to keep this band together and there's nothing wrong with any of it i think that's so important in our culture Absolutely. And it's very true. Like, look how many people just dismissed them because they cut their hair. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I got a friend of mine who says, I stopped listening to Metallica the minute they cut their hair. And I said, that is legitimately the dumbest fucking thing I think I ever heard. Like, that is so superficial and insanely idiotic. It when, really is. James Hetfield almost thought a little bit like that, too, because when he wrote Nothing Else Matters, he wasn't going to present it to the band. Right. It was Lars Ulrich that heard it and said, that's actually really good. We should do something with that. No, heavy metal's about you know, hitting things with, you know, sticks and, you know, being ugly and angry all the time. It doesn't have to be. It could be whatever the hell you want it to be. And they're not afraid to change their style or release a a softer song and release a ballad. And -hmm. you know what? It is one of the best songs ever written. Elton John said so. I'm going to say so, too. I really, really love that, too. Yeah. I mean, for Elton John to even really address metal at all, when that is so not what he's presented as a musician to us, to to think that he was even interested to listen to it is interesting. But I think as an artist, you want to hear other styles. You want to hear what else is going on out there. But the impact that had on him, considering the type of stuff he's written, I think that's pretty amazing. It really is. And now we're getting into load and reload on the show which everyone dismisses, oh, those are their shitty albums. They're, they're more blues-based. Now, I'm a kind of a blues-based guy. I love ZZ Top. Yeah. I love Aerosmith. So the fact that, and so did James Hetfield. Loved both those bands. So the fact that they kind of went down this road, I, I don't think these are shit albums coming up. There's a lot of good stuff coming up on Load and Reload. So uh, I'm looking forward to experiencing that aspect of it. Because Kevin's like, oh, heavy metal, blah, blah, blah. Metallica is all beat your head against the wall, leather jackets, long hair. But that's not the case. Like, they're much more... Uh, well-rounded uh, yeah. as musicians, as people even. Like you said, we go to therapy. Uh, you know, we're, we're learning to work with each other. We're dealing with demons. You know, we're dealing with each other as a family. We have the same problems as everybody. It's not just, you know, what we present to the public. It's all this other stuff, too, and that's okay. Yeah, well, I mean, they have the same problems as everybody else on top of all the problems of being one of the biggest bands in history and, uh, right. you know, tour requirements and album expectations and everything else they deal with. Uh, but if you if you go back and you look at Metallica during the early days and you watch like the Cliff Amal video, 
they are exactly a representation of what a metal band is expected to be. They're drunk all the time. They're just flipping off the camera. They're fuck this, fuck that. You know, it's it's exactly what you would have expected. Uh, the difference is they grew up. Yep, exactly. And there's nothing wrong with that. And I listened to Metallica when they had long hair and when they had short hair. I'm only going to listen to their medium hair stuff from going forward. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know Load and Reload at all. I, I'm sure I know a couple of songs, but I'm not at all familiar with those albums, not because of any reason. It's just kind of the Black Album was really the last album that I had connected with them. And then I kind of just drifted away. Uh, but I'll be curious. Really, I'm really anxious for you guys to get into those episodes because I'm anxious to get into the songs and see what they have to offer. Um, but yeah, so in other words, Blaze of Glory is an awesome song. <laughs> the long way of getting there. Let's take a listen to our next one. It's called Bloody Money. Hey, Patty and Garrett, that's what I used to call you. They tell me you want me, but I hear. They've got you and made you a lawman with a badge made of silver. They paid you some money to sell them my blood. But you say, This ain't about me, and this ain't about you. All the good and the bad times. Okay, here's my question for you. Why does this song work? It shouldn't work. Because his vocals are way overpowering the music, yet it works. Yeah, it, it works a little less for me, I think. This is always one that I kind of didn't really gravitate to from the soundtrack. Mm -hmm. uh, it sounds like I need to get one more song on the record. So he's going to take the moment in the Billy the Kid story where Pat Garrett used to be an outlaw with Billy the Kid, and they were best friends. They were like blood brothers. And then uh, the law got to Pat Garrett and made him a, a, a deputy and, and paid him off with money to bring them Billy the Kid. That's where you get the, they made you a lawman with a badge made of silver. They paid you some money to sell them my blood. It's hmm. blood money. Um, right. But even just how it starts, it sounds like I need a lyric. Hey, Pat Garrett, that's what I used to call you. They tell me you want me, but I hear that they've got you. Like It, it, it sounds kind of like I, I got three minutes left to go on the record. I need to write something quick. Even the way it fades out, the song is still going. And they mm -hmm. just made it out like, okay, we only needed this amount of time. We're just bringing the faders down. We're done. So <laughs> almost it, like you would in a film if you know you you're using a licensed song, but you only need a certain amount of time, and the song is yeah. way longer than your scene. Yeah, exactly. So um, I don't know if it really works for me. Like, it, obviously, it fits the. I love the guitar. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I love the melody of it. But yeah, he's singing way. Oh, he's way overpowering uh, the music on this one. It's almost like a hey, you know, look how loud and powerful I can sing. I don't know if the song really necessarily needs that. Mm -hmm. Had he take it and, and kept it around the same tone, he was keeping it on the verses. I, I think it would have worked maybe a little bit better because now all I'm thinking is, wow, John, you're loud. Right. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying. And I think he has the ability to sing in that more gentle tone, as we've already heard on a couple of songs here. Um, I think it's just his natural thing to always push that power. Yep. And I think he, I, I mean, who am I to edit Bon Jovi? But I think he could have had a more sustainable career if he was maybe singing a little more well-rounded. You know, as somebody uh, who's been around singers, especially, yeah, it, you know, you can blow that instrument out. 
And mm-hmm. to, to throw it back to Metallica, James Hetfield did that actually during the recording of the Black Album. Right. And that he finally went to a vocal teacher and he does vocal warm ups. Like, you know, you could really ruin your instrument if you're not careful. And like he said, on every song, look at a song like Never Say Goodbye mm-hmm. uh, from Slippery When Wet or uh, Living in Sin uh, from uh, New Jersey. Like, he's always, because he can, he's got a big, huge, powerful voice. And now right. he doesn't. And yeah, maybe had he taken care of it a little bit better uh, through this period and maybe taken a little easier on songs like this that don't require that big, big jump in vocal power in the chorus. Maybe he'd still be singing properly to this day, but it sounds like there's even something wrong. I've actually watched videos of, of like vocal specialists who are listening to John Bon Jovi sing now and think he actually probably needs some surgery because there's something wrong. Like it's not he, he forgot how to sing. He's been singing his whole life, but mm-hmm. there might be something physically impeding him from, from getting the notes out properly now. Oh, wow. Like maybe some polyps or something. Yeah. Something like that. Something even a little more extreme, but something wow. that's fixable anyway, mm-hmm. but when you work within the Bon Jovi organization, who's going to go to your boss and say, God, you suck now. Like we, we, we got to fix this. No one's doing that. Right. And it's right. not like John can quit. Cause if he quits, hundreds of people are out of work. Like not just the band, but everybody is the crew, everybody associated with the band, the lawyers, everything. Like it's an entire organization. So he can't just stop because people are still going to the shows. And, right. but for some reason, no one can go to him and say, Hey, maybe look at getting this fixed because it's not quite working. Well, someone should. I mean, just just because it's a you know maybe a tall mountain to climb, or you know you're afraid of losing your job. If that's what the overall best thing is, if you care about him, I don't know. Maybe suggest looking into that. I I would hard be hard pressed to think he hasn't been to doctors, and maybe is making the choice not to because he's afraid of what the surgery could do to maybe permanently damage him if it doesn't go well. And that, when you think about that. How do you how do you go? Okay, I'll, I'll go under the knife. We'll see what happens. Well, and they, there were some pictures of him late last year. Of he was at a charity event or something, and it looked like he had a scar on his neck. So everyone's like, "Oh, maybe he got some sort of surgery done. Maybe he's going to clean it up." But he just performed an acoustic thing uh, just before Christmas here, and it sounded like garbage. Like, oh, oh. it still didn't work. But it, it would be nice if somebody just went and said, "Hey, I'm I'm sure you could still sing. Let's yeah. get looked at and 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 get you trained up because rumors are." that Richie's going to come back to the band for a big anniversary tour coming up in 2024. Wow. Uh, big bon Jovi machine will be heading down the road again, but you, you don't want it to be like the, the last tour they're on. They only did like one leg because reviews were so bad because mm-hmm. he just couldn't sing. The band is still great. And right. he keeps adding pieces to the band. His producer, John Shanks actually plays with them. Now he has like wow. four guitars. Now he's got like two guitar players. He's got backup singers. Like he's trying to mask it by, you know, adding more instruments and stuff on stage. But, you know, when you get up there and you do Wanted Dead or Alive, it's just you and the guitar. Like, you, you can't hide that. When, yeah. you, when you're trying to sing the chorus of Living on a Prayer, you know, when that doesn't work, it, it's going to be pretty apparent. So, I, yeah, maybe John's listening to this show and he'll say, you know what, maybe those uh, two bald idiots uh, on this podcast are right. Maybe I should go see a vocal specialist and try and get this worked out before I head back on the road again. Well, and there's a good chance he is listening. And and I would say take the Aerosmith approach. You know, they were smart enough to say, okay, we're we're about to blow this. So let's take a step back. You know, everybody will get the work. We'll give it two, three months to recover. And I'm hoping that maybe that scar was an exploratory surgery where they're like, okay, you've got these gigs lined up. We know what we're in for. Go do those gigs. We'll do the surgery, give you three months to recover, whatever it's going to be, you know. Um, But then in contrast, you have a singer like Graham Bonnet who sings like he is being attacked at, at every moment. And yet he can still... There's just something magical about that man's vocal cords that he can still sing with that power today. 
there, there his, some, and he just turned 70. There, there are some people that just stand the test of time. Uh, yeah. Brian Adams, I'm going to throw out there. He still sounds like he did in 1985. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 1983, when he did like the Reckless album. Uh, uh, Ann Wilson for mm-hmm. Heart still sounds like that. Robin Zander from Cheap Trick. I watched them open for uh, ZZ Top last year in concert. Still sounds phenomenal. That guy's got tremendous rage. Really underrated vocalist. Tommy Shaw yeah. with Sticks. Oh, yeah. There's mm-hmm. another one. He sounded great in concert. So some people just seem to d- defy uh, you know, the sands of time, if you will, and still sound amazing. And some people, v- Vince Neil, I, I, I don't think, could sing Happy Birthday without you wanting to punch him. It's so, so bad. But he used to be able yeah. to sing. But there's another guy who maybe didn't take care of his instrument well enough or his proper instrument. Maybe the one in his pants he did. But the one in his throat <laughs> he certainly didn't. And, and yeah. now he sounds like a joke. Well, and, and and he's also gained a lot of weight, too, from pictures that I've seen, which I'm yeah, sure has a, a massive effect on your tone. Yeah. But you you also mentioned, uh, you know, with James Hetfield, I don't know what it was I was watching. It might have been one of the, uh, like, Some Kind of Monster, one of those videos. But uh, he was doing warm-ups before the show where he was actually singing into a uh, vaporizer. So mm-hmm. he had the, you know, the mist coming in. He had the towel over his head, and he was doing scales. And I thought, who would have ever thought that you would see a metal singer actually doing a proper warm up, And that was really inspiring to me because it's about taking care of yourself and sustainability and not ego and, oh, dear, I'm a metal singer. I can't do that. And, and that's what sets apart James Hetfield. He's thinking about the bigger picture. Like, if I blow my voice out, I'm not in this band anymore. Or maybe the band ceases to exist even. He's such a huge part of it, right? Yeah. Well, he's, he's a, not getting replaced. No. He's also the lyric writer and, you know, the main melody guy, too. But so he has the same uh, in some kind of monster. He said, I've got the same tape a vocal coach gave me back in 91 when I started seeing him and I play it before every show. And now he does it, like you said, through a vaporizer. You know, mm-hmm. you got to take care of it because yeah. uh, if it goes, it goes. And I don't know if you've heard Axl Rose recently. Everyone still crows about how great Axl Rose sounds. He sounds like hot garbage at the moment. Oh, yeah. I, like, I don't think he sounded good since they got back together. You know, I, I saw him on that tour, stadium tour, and he wasn't bad. There, there was still some stuff he could do. But mm-hmm. some stuff he could. Now it's just all like I don't know what the fuck it is. Like he sounds terrible, and he wasn't my favorite vocalist to begin with. I understand he has this huge range, bigger than Freddie Mercury. They kept crowing about right, but mm-hmm. just something. And I know you're not a fan of Brian Johnson, whereas I very much am. But he has that kind of Brian Johnson quality of just kind of screeching. And right. When you lose that, what the hell do you got? And that's kind of where we're at now. His tone is way off, and it just sounds kind of ridiculous. And I have to wonder if some of the attitude that he displayed on stage wasn't really more about his inability to perform and him lashing out than it was him actually just being pissed off and lashing out at fans or whatever. Um, but yeah, I, I liked Axel's voice on Appetite for Destruction. I thought, wow, this guy's really, it wasn't just his range. He sounded really good for that album, mm-hmm. you know, and, and he really was using some different techniques. He was a very individualistic singer. And, you know, when I, the live clips that I've seen over the last maybe decade or so. I'm just like, I don't, I wouldn't pay to see this. Yeah. And, and kind of same with Bon Jovi. I've never seen Bon Jovi live. Uh, I always wanted to. Uh, they did a big stadium uh, tour here on their uh, circle tour. Kid Rock opened for him. And mm-hmm. it, was, it was a big deal in Regina. And they actually uh, uh, shot a video here. If you watch, go online and you look for the official video for the song, This Is Our House. Um, bon Jovi shot that in Regina, Saskatchewan at that stadium show. That would have mm-hmm. been a cool show to go to. I missed it for whatever reason. I don't even remember. But now if, if they came around like Saskatoon, just three hours away from me, I'm like, would I even go? Like, I'd still like to see the band. And I still really like a lot of these songs. Mm-hmm. But to hear uh, John sing them currently, uh, you know, I, I don't think I would be up for that. 
Yeah, that's a good point. And you know, Winger's coming out with a new album, and I'm going to be very interested to hear what Kip Winger sounds like these days because I, he, he, I really don't sing. know. He yeah, can still sing. Yeah, I've heard some of his newer stuff, and there's a guy who took care of himself. Tremendous musician too. I know everyone likes to make fun of Winger, the mm -hmm. band. You know, they they put out some tunes I really like. I thought, yeah, uh, you know, their second album was was pretty good. Mm -hmm. uh, he was taking care of his voice. He's a tremendous bass player too. Yeah, but, uh, vocally, I I think he can still deliver the goods. I saw him with Alice Cooper on the Raise Your Fist and Yell tour in Detroit on Halloween night, which was pretty amazing. Um, very talented singer. I mean, he, and good looking guy, great voice. I mean, talk about a chick magnet. Yeah. You know, he could have been on the cover of every rock and roll magazine every month. And I think people would have just been completely happy with that. Got that slight beard look going, kind of the bad boy image. Um, but, it was that uh, generation Scott Haskin. That's right. That's yeah. that's how I like to think of it. Yeah. <laughs> but I remember um, when uh, I, I worked for a music store in Colorado Springs, and I wasn't there the day that this happened, but apparently there was some you know young kid, 16, 17 years old, trying to play on a guitar as kids do in a music store. And he was playing a 17. And Kip walks in the store and he sees this kid and he stands behind him. And he's just watching him. The kid has no idea he's there. And he just goes, oh, that's how that's played. <laughs> and I'm like, you know, that, that is such a shitty thing to do. Maybe he did it tongue in cheek. Like, because the kid didn't know it was Kip Winger, right? He was like, oh, is that how you play that? Like, I wouldn't know. Well, I wrote it. From what I from what I gathered, it was pretty much a, a mocking. He didn't give the kid the time of day. He just said that and walked away. No, hey, that's cool. You're playing my song or, you know, anything like that. No, no fan moment. Uh, and then I was working with a band that opened for them the beginning of I don't know what tour it was. It probably would have been 92, I want to say, uh, at the Chief Theater in Pueblo, Colorado, where he starts most of his tours because he's from Pueblo. And uh, we were setting up and I heard him say, who are these guys? And just walked away. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> so well, don't, don't have a good impression of him as a person. But as a musician, I can say he's tremendous. There's a great documentary on Paramount Plus on on kind of the hair metal era. Kip Winger is one of the people they showcase. Uh, one of the uh, players with uh, Skid Row's the other, and uh, the original singer of Vixen, who's oh. now like a dental uh, assistant, uh, was was the other. So uh, Kip really talks about his trials and tribulations through that time because he couldn't get signed to save his life, and then he finally got a deal. And then Winger became a joke, and then he couldn't get anything after that, and became a composer. And he actually composed classical music for a very long time. Ooh. And now he's just kind of going back out as winger again and playing the, you know, rock cruises and all that kind of stuff, the mm -hmm. county fairs and all that kind of stuff. But he comes across in that at least very well. Uh, so at least when he knows there's a camera on, he can be polite. Apparently he's a dick in public, though. That's that's too bad to hear. It's a shame. You know, it's it's the exact opposite of your Keith or Sutherland story, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But no, I'll be. I would. I would really be interested to hear his classical stuff because I think, as a songwriter, I think he's very talented. I would love to hear how he layers orchestral instruments. I'll have to check that out. Apparently, he's very widely regarded as a composer, like in uh, orchestral circles now. So, w was it getting the gig with Alice Cooper that led to him finally getting signed as a solo artist? No, I think he was looking to branch out from that and and kind uh -huh. of do his own thing. And so he he put together a really kind of a killer band. They're all really good musicians. And he mm -hmm. wanted to write his own stuff and, and do that. And for whatever reason, nobody, and at that time, they were signing everybody. Like yeah. if you had long hair and makeup and you could vaguely, you know, strum the guitar, you were signed to some label. Uh, mm -hmm. So the fact that Winger had so many uh, issues was kind of surprising because, you know, their debut, I think, went platinum. 
And I think their second album went platinum as well. So they, they had some success. Well, how many people turned the Beatles down? I guess, yeah, there was quite a few. Yeah. You know, everybody around England, uh, if you hear the stories, right? But, mm-hmm. Exactly. So, you know, you just just because you have the goods doesn't mean people are going to see the vision. But I'm glad somebody did because he had, he had some great songs, you know? I tell you what, a skiffle group out of Liverpool, they're never going to work. Come on. <laughs> this is go no. I wonder, I, I really wish those people would have been interviewed after the fact. Like, you know, come uh, Abbey Road or Sergeant Pepper. And, and so you regret not signing these guys now? I'm the guy that passed on the Beatles. Yeah. yeah. Uh, of course, they were a completely different band yeah. at the time, you know. Uh, well, let's get back to our album here. So that was Bloody Money. Let's uh, let's get into a little song called Blood Santa- Money. Blood Money. Mean, yeah, it's called Blood Money. I thought it was bloody money. Oh, it is blood money. I t- well, I can't type either. <laughs> Don't know what I'm talking about. Why do I have a podcast? <laughs> so I didn't mean to cut you off. You did that in the intro too. And I'm like, he's going to want to redo that probably because it's not bloody money. I don't you know? care about being wrong. And so that's why when I was talking, I'm like, and that's why they named the song blood money. <laughs> I tried to over enunciate for you. Did not I appreciate that. You, you're, you're my safety net in life, Corey. You're, you're just not here all the time. It's too bad I'm full of holes. <laughs> well, I, here's a town I, I I don't know if I've actually been through it or not. I've been through New Mexico a few times, but uh, here's Santa Fe. Here's here's the thing that bothers me looking at this album on the whole, and I don't know if this is chronological to the film. Maybe that's why these choices were made. But here we are on song five, and we've had basically three ballads already. Yep, three three at least mid to slow tempo, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, this one is one of my favorite ones, though, on the record. And actually, uh, Kevin Brown, when I said I'm doing a a Blaze of Glory show with Scott, he said Santa Fe is the best piece of music on that record. Mm. And well, you know, possibly it's certainly right up there. Again, this is just a uh, John with Aldo Nova and Kenny Aronoff uh, at Bedmont Tench again. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I like that, you know, Kenny's playing side stick on it. To me, this one always kind of worked a little bit better than Blood Money did. Uh, lyrically, uh, thematically, kind of everything about it. But again, John, you know, sings the first verse. You know, it's nice and calm. And then ah, it goes way up again. It's like, man, like, I, I saw the look on your face, too. It's like, it almost hurts. It's like, you know, we get it. You can <laughs> sing with power. You don't have to sing with power on every single song, though. Yeah, and and I love the way he sounds when he's not singing that way. So he could get through a song. Like, if you want to emphasize a couple of words or a line here and there, okay. But the whole song does not have to turn in. Not everything needs to build like that all the time. It, it gets stale after a while. Absolutely. But it, it's the chorus of the song that always worked for me. Uh, yeah. I swear I'm going to live forever, which was the mindset of Billy the Kid at the time, right? Tell my maker he can wait. I'm riding somewhere south of heaven. I'm heading back to Santa Fe. It's Judgment Day in Santa Fe. That's a, a great 
it, it's not only a great chorus, a great musical uh, aside here, but it fits the song. And that's really what this album does so well for me is the way it fits the song. It's not like a, and I love the Guardians of the Galaxy films. I love how he handpicks the songs to fit certain moves, but they weren't written for that. Right. Like uh, Rainbow didn't write Since You've Been Gone uh, for a space sequence in Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. At least I'm pretty sure they didn't. They're a few years apart. Yeah, but not, John, not 40 but, years Forty years yeah, later. Exactly. <laughs> but John, you know, watched the movie and wrote this for that. And it fits the song so, or it fits the movie so well. And mm-hmm. I, I love that marriage of music and movie. I used to do a podcast on it, uh, theme music. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All about that. And you could do almost every single song off this record because it fits certain parts of the movie so incredibly well. And that's something that just didn't happen a lot then. It certainly doesn't happen now. Um, if you watch the new Barbie movie, they wrote a couple of songs that directly uh, fit the film, but not an entire album's worth. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe two or three, and then they're going to throw in some radio hits, you know, try and move a few more units when you sell it, right? But this all music, all lyrically composed to fit this film. And that, that was a rarity then. It's even more rare now. Yeah, I really can't think of, of any other examples where it was done this way. And I think that's a shame because I think there's a lot of good music that could be inspired by films that would be really great to listen to. Uh, and I don't, and I feel that this music stands alone though. I, I feel like if you just listen to this as an album with the, with the exception of a couple things, like the intro to the first song, the, you know, the, the voiceover and that, um, I feel like this album would stand on its own without the movie. And even if you haven't seen the movie, you hear those little clips from the film, I, I think add to the, the, because they're, they're specific quotes for specific songs, right? Like You Who I'll Make You Famous for Billy Get Your Guns. Uh, there's a great one coming up uh, where uh, Doc Keeper Sutherland says to Billy, uh, you are not a god. And he says, why don't you pull the trigger and find out? And mm-hmm. that leads into a, a, the, the song that just, you know, again, fits that, that moment in the film. I, I wish yeah. more people would do it. Because like you said, uh, musicians are inspired by films all the time. And yeah. to sit down and compose something directly for a movie that has lyrics and, mm-hmm. and kind of a more of a, a modern music vibe to it as opposed to an orchestral sto- uh, score is a really cool way to do it. And, and so many directors listen to music when they're writing or writers right. and directors when they're, uh, you know, composing the shots and everything. I want this to sound like this moment in this album I used to listen to. So and yeah. that, that becomes a bone of contention for us film composers because we hate temp tracks. We, we hate right. getting told to sound like this or do like what they did, but don't make yeah. it, you know, copyright infringement. And exactly. You know, it, 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 thing I heard once and uh, just make it better. So what, well, I started you know, the last couple of films I did when I was working with directors. I I said, don't talk to me about songs. I want you to talk to me about the emotion. Tell me what you want this scene to feel like, or what you want that to feel like. That's what we should be delivering. And I think you can get stuck in your head something that doesn't necessarily work uh, because it was initial idea you had, and maybe the scenes changed, or it was rewritten, or parts have been removed, and that song doesn't necessarily work anymore. But because it's stuck in the director's head, they put it in the temp score. Mm-hmm which is is very frustrating for people that do what I do. Uh, but I, I really like this song. It, it almost started out feeling like a Christmas song to me. Um, just had that, because it's all of a sudden the orchestra, which is, you know, not, you know, not something that we've been hearing as a part of the album. Um, I, I have to say, though, I did hate the line, tell my guns I'm coming home. <laughs> I hated that line. Just shut the fuck up, really. Don't you talk it, to your guns? I don't. I don't. I don't talk to inanimate objects a whole lot. Uh, I'm kind of afraid they'll start answering back at some point. <laughs> but uh, 
No, I, I definitely thought that was a horrible line. But other than that, no, I thought it was great. I love the sound of the drums on this too, especially the reverb and everything. The drums just sound huge without without dominating the mix. Absolutely true. And I, I love the orchestral uh, moments there too. Mm-hmm. Like you said, we haven't got that on the album yet. But this is a great moment to kind of put that in, I, I think. And Santa Fe closes outside A uh, of this record. We're listening to it on vinyl. So it's a great side A closer too. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the thing was, is I just didn't expect it. It it just, it took me by surprise because, okay, I can see an accordion, I can see a harmonica, you know, I can see a break drum, orchestra. <laughs> Don't really correlate orchestras in Western music, but okay. You know, but it, but it was just more of a shock for me. And I, I, and of course I'm listening to this just after Christmas. So that probably had a little bit of influence on it as well. Uh, but no, it's a great song. No sleigh bells. Uh, I can't remember which Genesis song it was. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Uh, about uh, uh, Eric Clapton's son's death, they put sleigh bells on it. It's like, now that's a little much. Yeah, that was just weird, I have to say. I'm just going to blame Tony Banks for that. Yep, absolutely. It, 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 giving it was the percussion department, it may have been Phil Collins, but either way, Tony Banks influenced that. 100%. And, and Mike Rutherford just looked the other way. Yeah, he just mumbled something <laughs> and went back to his team. <laughs> no, it's a great song, though. I think I... I I have to say the the snare sound is killer. The vocal is passionate. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. It just, for me, uh, you know, listening to the album in succession, I'm already kind of done with the slower ballads. I I want something that's going to give a little kick. It's kind of a melancholy movie though, too. So I'm kind of thinking back more in movie terms. If you're listening to it just as music, yeah, three three out of five on side A could be a little bit much. Mm-hmm. Uh, you could maybe could have bumped up uh, one of the more up-tempo tracks from side B on there too and put Santa Fe near the end, but um, I'm not in charge of sequencing. And I gen- as a piece of music, as a song, I-, I love Santa Fe. It's been stuck in my head yeah. since I started listening to the record again. Oh, good. Show here. And I'll yeah. just wake up bumming Santa Fe and I'm not mad at it. It, it lives in my head rent-free and I'm happy for it. You- yeah. Usually it plays a glory, but I think mm-hmm. maybe because I've heard that literally 18 million times, uh, I'm gravitating more to Santa Fe right now. Right. You know, I get that. And I get why Kevin Brown loves it so much, too. You know, and for those of you who are listening who don't know who Kevin Brown is, uh, he will be on the show at some point reasonably soon. But uh, we uh, he is the co-host of the Ultimate Catalog Clash. That's right. And he also he, does a Queen show, Seaside Pod Review and the Tom mm-hmm. Petty Project. So he has just as many podcasts as I do. That's right dominating you guys are making me look bad i i everybody talks about how busy i am as a podcaster and i'm not that much anymore but it's because i was doing so many shows i was doing five shows a week sometimes six or seven That's if not. i had bonus haskin cast podcast but with the uri heap show i was doing for a week plus this one uh and then i joined the aerosmith show in the middle of all of that so uh, it just seemed like i was doing a lot and i guess i was but i the reputation has continued uh i just don't have to do the work <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all that matters is reputation, right? You can sit back and your, you know, enjoy your millions at your palatial estate in Las Vegas, Nevada, and just count your money and just wait for another guest opportunity on, you know, the Van Halen show or what have you. That's right. I need to take some of this to the bank because I'm starting to sit too high for the microphone. It's looking a little Scrooge McDuck, I got to tell you. I can see it in the background <laughs> of your shot there. Like, do you ever just dive in head first into the, you know, the gold coins and swim oh, around? Oh, yeah. 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 Well, it just, just, you have to wear goggles. Okay, that's smart, yeah. You know, I'm waiting for the three ghosts to come and visit me to tell me that I, I need to do something better with my life, and it hasn't happened, so I guess I'm I'm okay. Uh, the other thing I want to mention about this was uh, I really like the uh, just, just the violins, but also the piano. 
I think there's some really beautiful piano parts in here too that really enhance the song. All hail Ben Montench, fantastic musician. There's another one who kind of had his role with the Heartbreakers, but went on and did uh, compositions, uh, orchestral and classical after that. And incredibly talented guy. Uh, one of the, really the main driving forces of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. And uh, I, I never knew until I, I was, uh, you know, until like maybe 10 years ago that Ben Montench even played on this record. And you kind of look at the liner notes, you go, holy shit, Ben Montage. He's from Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. And holy shit, Randy Jackson. He's the weird judge from American Idol. And oh, there's Carrie Aronoff. And there's uh, uh, Elton fucking John and Little Richard for crying out. I knew Little Richard. <laughs> He's pretty, uh, you know, you, you can't mistake uh, El- uh, Little Richard for crying out. Yeah, right. yeah, exactly. Uh, no, great song, though. I, I will admit, I think it's a fantastic song. And if I if I look at it outside of the context of the album and just take the song for the song, it's absolutely brilliant and flawless. I, I love it. 